What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is Friday, January 28th at the time of recording, even though we're not talking about any really new cases today, so I don't think there'll be any updates where the date matters, but you know, you never know. (laughs) Something could happen. happen. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sitting here with a blanket on because it's been brutally cold here. We were just joking that now this is a weather and true crime um, (laughs) podcast because what else is there to talk about? It's really, really hot here. I've actually just had to shut the windows because you can hear all the insects getting ready because it's going to be so, so, so hot. But anyway, one more month of summer here. I'm getting like six inches of snow tonight Mm -hmm. at least. I'm not where the big blizzard is going to be. I'm not close enough to like the coast, but I guess it's going to be pretty bad for like Boston, Massachusetts, like Long Island, Staten Island, people on the coast, I guess they're going to get like a bomb, whatever those, what's the word again? A bomb. Yeah, the bomber. I don't know. It's like a bomb. I don't know. (laughs) Bombageddon. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely not it, but that's basically it. It's crazy. Like a snow, snow weather, I guess, is harsher because it's so, so cold. You need heat. Whereas every other weather, you know, you can kind of survive if it's super hot or whatever. But the heat, losing heat is very scary. Yeah. We cover our windows with plastic wrap to like keep the air from coming in. And even still, like if it's really cold out, it's been literally negative or like one degree. I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be like 60 degrees in my apartment, which is so cold. Even with the windows covered, though. It's just like, I just live in a shitty old building. Fun times. I know. I need to move. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the pandemic, the economy, everything's just falling apart. <laughs> already. It's only one, not even one month in. It's already a horrible year. <laughs> it's been worse. It's not terrible. It's not great. But yeah. it's not the worst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess as long as it could always be worse, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um. So today... If you can't tell by the episode name, we're going to be talking about kids who kill, but not specifically kids like children, but mostly like people who kill their parents parents and families, like things like that. So some of these kids are actually like adults, right? (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, they are. Like, I think most of them that we're going to speak about are like teenagers to early 20s at the time. I think, I think, yeah, the only one is early 20s, the other were teenagers, so... So they're not like little little kids murdering people. Maybe we'll do that for a different episode. Yeah, kids like, who thank, kill too. Thankfully, you don't hear that as much, but it does happen occasionally mm-hmm. with younger kids, especially with accidental shootings and things like that. We almost see that every week. It seems that there's an accidental shooting of a from a toddler of their parent or something like that. So yeah, it's so crazy. <sighs> it's crazy. So we've talked about family sides before in some other podcast episodes. We did like. Moms who kill, well, moms who murder, because you got to keep the um... puns going. <laughs> no, what is it? Um, the worst writing major ever? When like all the words start with an M or whatever. Is that alliteration? Alliteration, yeah. <laughs> we had to keep the alliteration for that one. And then what do we do for dads? Was it just dads who kill? Deadly dads. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Was it? Maybe. Yeah, no, that was it. That was it. And now we've got kids who kill. So killing it with the name game. To remind you, a famicide is a type of murder or murder-suicide in which a perpetrator kills multiple close family members in a quick succession, most often children, relatives, spouse, siblings, or parents. If only the parents are killed, the case may also be referred to as a parricide, which sounds like a weird word. 
Hmm, sounds like a insecticide or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like parasite <laughs> or parrot. Mm. When all the family members are killed, the crime may also be called to as a family annihilation, which I guess all the family members, but because I feel like didn't they call Chris Watts a family annihilator or Tony Tote? You know, like yeah. they're still alive. They killed their whole family. I think in um, actually all of these cases that we're going to discuss today, there was at least one surviving family member apart from the um, the killers. So yeah, I think a family annihilation is when basically you can also be the you, the only survivor in the family when the murderer is the only survivor. Yeah, so, that's how I've heard it used anyways. Yeah, I, that's how I understand it too. Between 1900 and 2000, there were 909 victims of mass murder in the U.S., defined as four victims within a 24-hour period. Of those, more than half occurred within an immediate family. Although family-side cases are relatively rare, they are the most common form of mass killings. So today we're going to discuss three cases where kids have killed family members. Um, so we're going to start with the Bever family. I think that's probably the most well-known one of the three. And, well, they're all pretty crazy, but this one was, like, really crazy. Yeah, this one's wild. Yeah, this one, this is one of the ones I've always been kind of obsessed with. Like, even though I've read everything about it multiple times, there'll be like a random night before bed where I'm like, I'm mm, just going to read about the Bevers again. <laughs> <laughs> See if anything's changed. <laughs> I'm like, what are they up to in jail? Like, maybe there's something new out. I don't know. I it's do just have cases those- yeah, like that where I always go back, even though I know there's probably not going to be any new things happening, but I always go back and read. Like the Porco case, which you're going to discuss second, is one of those for me. I always just find it so wild. I go back and just read about it again, even though I know basically everything that happened. And I'll randomly just like, let me read the Bever Wikipedia page again, <laughs> just to see. <laughs> Sometimes the, the Bever family murder is referred to as the Broken Arrow killings, because that's where it happened in... Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, which I always thought was kind of a cool name for a place. Yeah, definitely. There seems to be always a lot of news coming out of Broken Arrow. Like, I don't think it's a huge place, but there always seems, maybe just notice because the name is so... Yeah, because the name, like, stands yeah. out. <laughs> now to a mysterious case unfolding in Oklahoma tonight. A 911 call coming in overnight, no voice heard on it. The first sign that something was very wrong. Five family members were then discovered dead in their home. A mother and father and some of their children but two of their teenage sons tonight under arrest. Here's ABC's Ryan Owens. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma has one, maybe two murders a year. But tonight, this community is reeling from five, the worst crime anyone here can remember. It weighs a lot on, especially when they're, the victims involved are juveniles. 11.30 last night, the 911 call comes in. It's silent no one on the line. When police arrive to investigate, they see two young men running out of the back door of the home. Canines soon tracked down 18-year-old Robert Beaver and his 16-year-old brother in the woods behind the home. Inside, horror. Five members of the brother's family found stabbed to death. Their parents, David and April Beaver, their 12- and 17-year-old brothers, and their 5-year-old sister. Two siblings survived the rampage. A 13-year-old sister is in the hospital tonight, and the family's baby, a 2-year-old girl, the only one left unhurt. All right, so some background on the Bever family, if you don't know. This happened in 2015, and the Bever family lived at 709 Magnolia Court, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. The family consisted of David Bever, who was 52, the father, April Bever, 44, she was the mother, and then these are their children. At the time of the attack, there was Daniel was 12, Christopher was 7, Victoria was 5, 
Crystal was 13, and Autumn was 2. Then the two brothers who did the attacking at the time of the attack, Robert Bever was 18, and Michael Bever was 16. David Bever, the father, he worked in the tech field while April homeschooled their children. Neighbors described the family to be reclusive, but friends remembered them differently. In an interview, a friend of April's recalled them driving in a snowstorm to bring her son to TV since his television had stopped working and stated that April had a big heart. A lot of the information about what happened on July 22nd comes from a survivor of the massacre, who is Crystal Bever. She was 13 at the time. So around 11.30 p.m. that night, Crystal went to Robert and Michael's room to tell them to do the dishes. She recalled seeing them put on their body armor, and she said they had multiple knives laid out on their bed. Crystal also heard Michael ask their brother, should we do it now? Robert replied, yes. Michael then told Crystal to check something on his computer screen. As Michael distracted her, Robert slit his sister's throat. Crystal fought back. Robert was able to stab her multiple times as she ran out of the house. As she was running, she could hear her mother, April, screaming. Crystal was dragged back inside the house but could not remember by who. April, the mother, was stabbed 48 times in the face, chest, abdomen, neck, and arms. So terrifying for the for Crystal. Imagine 13 years old and dealing with all this. It's crazy. It's probably also just like the last thing you fucking expect. Like your brother's like, look at this on my screen. And then they slit your throat. And then just try and stab you as you're trying to escape. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, like in some situations, you know, when you get a bad feeling, you can like sense the danger. I feel like there, you really probably wouldn't. I mean, maybe you would because they had knives laid out and were being kind of weird. But just like, who would expect that? A 911 call was made at about this time by Daniel, who was 12 years old. He said that his brother was attacking the family. Screaming commotion in a male voice were heard in the background before the line went dead. Dispatchers tracked the address by searching the number. After a failed attempt to call David Bever, the father, they dispatched officers to the scene. Christopher and Victoria, they are seven and five, had been hiding from their brothers in a bathroom. In an interrogation, Michael told detectives that he had tricked his siblings into opening the door. He told them Robert was going to kill him if they didn't open it. Once they opened the door, they were both stabbed to death. In the same interrogation, Michael stated he stabbed his brother Christopher in the neck. Christopher was stabbed 21 times in the back, chest, head, and neck. Victoria endures 23 stab wounds ranging from her abdomen area to her face. That part always made me real sad. No, they're such tiny little kids. And you trick them. Mm. Like, what if that didn't happen? Would they have been safe? Very sad. There seems to be some big noting by both the murdering brothers as each tried to take responsibility for these killings. In pretrial statements, Michael told detectives that he had stabbed both Victoria and Christopher, though Robert would later take credit for killing them. So the next victim was to be Daniel Bever. He was the one who called 911 first. Daniel was hiding in his father's office, and Michael tricked him the same way he did the other siblings. He begged Daniel to open the door before Robert killed him. Daniel opened the door to to hear Michael tell Robert, he's all yours. Daniel was on the phone with the police still. Michael grabbed the phone from him and said, hello, which you can hear in the 911 call. He then smashed the phone while Robert stabbed his younger brother 21 times in the stomach, chest, neck, and back. Hello? Hi, Hi where are you at? Bacon out, Oklahoma, 7411. What address? <laughs> Seven Okay. Are you the only one there? No. My brother's attacking my family. Your dad is attacking your family? 
No, my doggo. Okay, who's attacking your family? What? Who's attacking your family? Yes. Who, who is it? Do they? Are you there? Hello? Hi, what's going on there? What's going on there? Hello? Hello? The father of the family, David, came out to investigate what the commotion was all about. And he was stabbed 28 times from his chest, back, abdomen, all over. I just can't believe how violent it was. They were all stabbed, you know, over 20 times. It's crazy. It's a very I know frenzied it must be attack. Like adrenaline but i just feel like my arm would get so tired oh no just stabbing someone that many times and it was like multiple times that's be like a hundred over a hundred stabs yeah and i'm sure like they were fighting back especially like the dad who's probably bigger than them or like their siblings or maybe like some of them are closer in size like Mm. it's like they just laid there and died yeah exactly it's crazy they pulled this off honestly to, yeah, and to kill so many of the family. Like, it's not like they just ended up killing one. They killed most of the family. It's crazy. Yeah, like, when wouldn't you think you'd hear Crystal scream in the beginning? And then, maybe like, the, you know, the mom went in to see what was going on. And then you hear the mom scream. Like, you have to, I guess that's why all the little kids were hiding, because they didn't really know what to do. Yeah. So when police arrived at the house, they found blood on the front porch and could faintly hear someone calling for help. They entered the premises and found five members of the Bever family dead. The two survivors were Crystal who was severely injured, and the baby Autumn, who was two years old. She was thankfully unharmed. During the actual search of the residence when we were looking for victims, my mind and my body was coping with it, telling me that these were all mannequins. And um, it's a coping mechanism, but there were some long nights following uh, the Bever murders where I couldn't sleep. It's an unbelievable case. And to sit in that courtroom and see those pictures and hear those stories, I'm immune to a lot of stuff I cover over the years. I mean, you have to be. You can't take it on. As a journalist, you can't take on all that pain and grief. But I've never told anybody that after this case, every single night, I went home and cried. I cannot take home a lot of my cases, and I do that on purpose. But this case, you can't get rid of it. Police found knives, hatchets, and protective gear at the home. Um, Robert and Michael were not in the home when police arrived. They had attempted to flee into a wooded area behind their home. Police searched the area with dogs, and the pair were quickly found. One of the dogs attacked Michael as he was arrested. O'Brien, three police officers and two firefighters, all with Broken Arrow, talked about what they saw inside the house that night and some who even interacted with Michael Bever after his arrest. Now, the first witness who testified was the first police officer to arrive at the house in Broken Arrow that night. Now, he brought Michael to his patrol vehicle after he was apprehended and said Michael was emotionless, flat and stoic. He testified that Michael said to him, I hope they're okay talking about the people inside the home. He said it was the bloodiest scene of his 15-year career in law enforcement. 
One firefighter testified that he thinks about that night every day and it sticks out to him. The courtroom filled with emotions after seeing the gruesome pictures of the family members who were killed that night. Robert and Michael were both arrested and charged with five counts of first-degree murder and one count aggravated assault and battery with a deadly weapon. Um, no bail was given and they were remanded. After the arrest, more information about the motive came out. Um, the brothers wanted to kill their family and then go on a cross-country killing spree. Their plan was to kill their family silently and stealthily, which, as we were just saying, seems to be a bit of a fail. Robert Bever had told the court he planned to decapitate his two-year-old sister but had forgotten. You know, he was so busy. Yeah, that's one silver lining in all this that he forgot to do that. I wonder if he forgot or just kind of really drew the line somewhere. Yeah. After they murdered their family, they were going to clean up and dispose of the bodies. According to Broken Arrow detectives, they were going to cut the bodies into pieces. They would store the body parts in bins and place them in the attic. The plan was to do this quietly and then go on a killing spree. They'd ordered multiple guns to be delivered to a local gun store and 2,000 rounds of ammunition that were scheduled to arrive at the house the same the day after the murders. I wonder where they got the money for all that. That's That would be a lot of money. I feel like I read that they literally just, like, saved their allowance, which is, like, so... But that's, yeah. yeah, like, wouldn't you think it'd be expensive? Also, how are they just ordering this as children? Yeah, 2,000 rounds of ammunition, you think, I don't know the cost, but it sounds like it would be expensive. Plus multiple guns. Like, you'd be talking at least thousands of dollars here. Yeah. I guess Robert, Robert's 18, right? So I guess that yeah, counts. Yeah, maybe. He had a proper job, yeah. Well, so I mean, like, I guess he could order this stuff as technically an adult. Yeah. They always just look so, like, young and derpy that I forget that he was technically an adult. Baby-faced. Yeah, they just look like... They look like middle schoolers to me, like just like awkward, scrawny teenagers. Like even, even in the photos when they were arrested, like he's just standing in front of the car. He That's looks so scrawny, stupid. yeah, scrawny, like yeah, derpy. That's a good, good word to describe. Yeah. It. <laughs> so derpy looking. <sighs> Robert and Michael had a goal to kill fifty to one hundred people between Oklahoma and Washington. Like oddly specific. One of the brothers told police that their murderous plans had been. Stored on a flash drive in the home. Police found the flash drive on the property. They also recovered computer equipment and video surveillance cameras, which they believed recorded the family side as they were located near where three of the victims' bodies were found. It was later determined the brothers planned to make two videos, one depicting the bodies of their family that would be shown to investigators and prosecutors, the other without the bodies that could be posted online. So they, they really went to a lot of thought into this plan. Even yeah. though it was all very chaotic and stupid, they did think of like a lot of weird details. It seems like they really thought they were going to get away with it. Like even the part about storing the bodies in the attic, like it just yeah, and cutting really... the bodies into pieces. Like does it? All do they not know how hard it is to of... cut a little body up? <laughs> and it would take so much time. I feel like yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I guess it just kind of shows that entitlement. I don't know. Yeah. Also, just like how naive they are because they're so young. But then again, it's like. Does anybody who's not a seasoned killer really know, like, what it takes? But even us, like, just saying now, being like, that would take a ton of work to, like, cut up their bodies into little pieces and leave them, put them in bins in the attic. It just shows they kind of lived a sheltered life, which they did. I wonder, too, why they didn't wait until they got these guns to do it. Like, you think that the guns would be a lot, an easier method to kill the whole family and a much quicker and quieter method than stabbing them. Yeah, I wonder if something... Mm. specifically set them off that day for some reason yeah being asked to do the dishes yeah maybe that's it maybe they just had enough that snapped had enough dishes another possible contributing factor in this case is that david bever was allegedly abusive 
Defense attorneys stated that David Bever was physically and verbally abusive towards his children, according to Crystal Bever's testimony. Robert Bever claimed that both of his parents were hateful and abusive to him and all of his siblings. He said his parents would often talk about people they hated and would refer to biblical would refer to the biblical apocalypse as a retribution thing for everything they hated about the world. So the brothers were first arraigned in court on August 3, 2015, and they both pled not guilty to the charges against them. The hearing date for them kept being pushed out until it finally happened on February 23, 2016. Robert changed his mind and pled guilty on all charges. The judge sentenced him to serve life without parole for each of the five counts and received an additional life sentence for the assault and battery with a deadly weapon charge. It's believed he pled guilty to avoid the death penalty. He would testify during his brother's trial, taking full blame for each murder. And Michael, on the other hand, entered a plea of not guilty and appealed the court's decision to put him on trial as an adult. His lawyers also put in a motion to seal all information to the public, stating that they would be under public scrutiny. The court denied both motions. While Michael was in jail, also just like as a reminder, Michael is the younger one and yeah. Robert's the older one. Yeah. So it kind of seemed like at the time that Robert was kind of taking the fall to try to help his younger brother. Maybe to whether, give him a chance of getting out or whatever. Yeah, whether it's true that Robert like did really manipulate him into doing this, who's to say? Only like, and I know Michael was 16 and Robert was 18, but like 16 and 18 isn't a huge gap. It's not like... Robert was 35 and he was, you know, 16. They they were, I think, on pretty equal footing and it just so happened that Robert was 18 and therefore was classed as an adult automatically, so. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's not like trying to convince a 16-year-old to murder their family is different than trying to convince, like, a 10-year-old yeah. of why it would be a good idea. Like, at 16, you still know that that's Wrong. not a good idea and you can't really be lied to about why it's a good idea. Sure, maybe his older brother manipulated him, but it was still like, he still did it. Yeah. While Michael was in jail, he kept a journal that was described to be morbid and violent by a deputy. So there are some photos of online of pages of the journal. One, there's like, he's not a very, a very artistic person, but there's a stick figure with um, the person is pointing a gun to their face and there's kind of blood coming out the back of their head and the words death, the word death written above it. And then there's another one um, where I think it says Robert and Michael. It looks like it's been drawn in crayon or colored pencil. Um, Robert and Michael, and it looks like, I don't know, are they tombstones? I don't know what the two I drawings. guess would have been, it looks like two tombstones, I guess. Or unless it represents their body armor or something. Like it's basically just two black. One's got a bit of green on it. I don't know, just anyway, two things. And then below that. A bunch of dead stick figures. Yeah, it must be. There's five. Yeah, dead stick figures with red scribbled on them, which I'm assuming kind of represents the blood. So maybe that represents them being buried under the ground or I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, it's all blood, guns, death, dead people. So it is quite disturbing and definitely morbid and violent, as they said. Yeah, but it also looks like it was drawn by a child because they're all like little stick figures. It's kind like, of ridiculous. It's like a hangman stick figure. That's it's no. Yeah. There's no effort being put into that. <laughs> Minimal effort. Yeah. So Michael was found guilty on all counts, and he received five consecutive life sentences for each murder and 28 years for the assault with a deadly weapon, with the possibility of parole after 85% of the time was served. Michael's lawyers fired and filed an appeal stating that serving five consecutive life sentences was unconstitutional. It did not give their client a chance of getting out of prison. The appeal was denied. 
So right now, Michael Bever is currently serving time in the Lexington Correctional Center. And Robert Bever is currently serving time in the Joseph Harp Correctional Center. While inside, he got both his hands tattooed, one saying LWOPX5, which is life without parole, five counts. And the other hand spells out five. Yeah, lame. Lucky they didn't end up murdering someone else. Otherwise, it would have been six and it would have been uneven. Yeah. Dumb. And then both of the sisters who lived through this were adopted to the same home, which is a tiny bit of a nice ending to a terrible story. On June 17, 2016, Robert Bever attempted to hang himself in his jail cell with a bed sheet. He was uninjured in the incident and was moved to suicide watch. In mid-February 2017, Broken Arrow City Council announced a plan to raise money through the Tulsa County Foundation for the acquisition of the Bever family home. They hoped that enough money could be raised to purchase the house from the Bever's mortgage holder and lending company, its then-owner. If enough funds were raised, it was planned to tear the house down and in its place create a memorial park and garden titled The Bever Family First Responders Memorial Park. In, like, a crazy plot twist to this whole thing, the house ended up being destroyed in a fire on March 18, 2017. Good morning, Will. Those firefighters say that they're not going to go inside to see exactly what happened until they get all of the hot spots out. You can see right now just how bad this damage is. The second floor almost completely gone. So you can see right now these firefighters out here trying to make sure that they get all of these hot spots out. So they have investigators here as well as firefighters. They do want to figure out what happened here, but they say that they don't believe anyone was inside of the home at the time. So no one was injured, but they got the call around 3:30. They said it was heavily involved that the house was extensively damaged as soon as they got here, but it took them about an hour to get those flames almost completely out. So you remember a little less than a month ago, the city of Broken Arrow said that they were proposing plans to buy this home and create a park as a memorial for the family. So we don't exactly know where that plan stands right now with the house in this state. We'll talk to some neighbors, but we were live on Facebook just a couple minutes ago and people were kind of excited to have this house destroyed. They want it gone. The neighbors that we spoke with earlier said that this home harbors bad memories for the neighborhood. So we'll continue to talk to neighbors and figure out what this means for the people that live around this house. On March 27, 2019 is when they ended up making a reflection park and it was dedicated in an official ceremony. So they wanted to do this nice thing for the first responders because a lot of the first responders said kind of how traumatic it was seeing all these dead children, obviously, and that it really fucked them up and haunted them for a long time. Yeah. So as a little bit of an interesting fact, one of the first Facebook groups that we did have was a Broken Arrow group about these killings. And there was a neighbor in the group who was very invested, as you would be, I guess, if this happened in the house, you know, near you or next to you. Um, and then he, when when the fire happened, it was all a bit, oh, that's very convenient because they the house just sat there ruined for you know, however long and there was trespasses and people going in and out and different things like that. So when the fire happened, a lot of people questioned if it was very convenient that it had been burned down or, you know what I mean, because no one seemed to be doing anything to get rid of it or to move it along. Yeah, like people wanted it gone and it was just sitting there forever. But I remember the guy in the group, like he would always post like house updates, like still house, just sitting here, like he'd post pictures of it all the time, which obviously we like to see because we Mm. like that kind of stuff. But I remember immediately when I heard there was a fire, he was the first one I thought of. I was like, <laughs> oh, I wonder if he posted about the fire or did he set the fire? Yeah, it just seems very convenient that all the neighbors hated it and then it caught, you know, caught fire. I'm assuming there was no power and electricity to the house, so an actual fire cause, not an electrical fire. 
So I tried to have a look and see if the cause of the fire had ever been determined, but the most recent update I can find was 2020 and there was no, it said, that article said there was no cause. So if there has been a cause, I don't think it's ever been made public, but I guess, you know, they're probably they're not going like, to into it that care. much. Yeah. <laughs> but also remember, because I just remember hearing this and I was like, I need to know like what this guy's saying. And I went and he like didn't post anything. And we're like, that's so weird. And then remember he like came on. And he was like, whoa, I slept through it. And we were like, no fucking way did this guy yeah. sleep through it. And I feel like before that, he'd be like, someone was in the house at 11.01 last night. Like he would yeah. update us all on, you know, trespasses and, you know, whatever other things that were going on. But then somehow he miraculously slept He's through like, the fire. I slept through it. <laughs> and this is, a, and we didn't really say, this is a huge house. Obviously, yeah. we have a lot of kids. This house is huge. So like- oh, the fact yeah. that it was a bad fire and he lived kind of he was like a neighbor in the sense that he lived like behind them or something it seemed like because it seemed like he was always taking pictures of like the back of their house yeah he, yeah his view was, was like the there's no way unless he's a really heavy sleeper and like had an air conditioner or something on that this massive fire was happening and he missed it after he would take pictures of the house all the time and be like oh so sad like i remember the one picture you took that always stuck with me was like little stick figure and like little kid drawings that were like on one of the windows that the kids must have drawn. I just had a look and the house was five bedroom, four and a half bathroom, 4,500 square foot. So yeah, it was a big, big house. Like it's not like it's a little, you know, trailer or something that you wouldn't notice a fire. It was a big property. Yeah. And we'll put them on the blog, but obviously since the house was kind of like abandoned and vacant for so long, there's tons of pictures of the inside of the house that people took like through windows and stuff and you could see where like the carpet was cut out or like parts of the wall were cut out because for evidence and because of blood and like crime scene cleaning and stuff like that so i mean it's morbid but people like us are interested in seeing it so those pictures we'll put them on the blog but they're online yeah so as we mentioned earlier in 2020 there was a little bit of action surrounding michael's case um this information's from tulsaworld.com and it says, a sharply divided appellate court has upheld a Tulsa judge's decision to disregard jury recommendations in the sentencing of Michael Bever for the fatal 2015 attack on his family members with his older brother. A 3-2 to two ruling ensures his convictions and life sentences will stand. Though two appellate court judges noted Bever's term of incarceration, quote, is in contrary to the jury's wishes and appears to violate the spirit of the U.S. Supreme Court's guidance on punishments for minors convicted of violent crimes. Half of the 12 jurors had signed a letter to District Judge Sharon Holmes asking her to give Bever the eventual chance for release on parole after at least 38 years in custody or when he is in his mid-50s. Holmes instead ordered Bever should serve all six sentences consecutively and did not offer any explanation. So Crazy that the jurors still after seeing all that graphic, you know, testimony and images and whatever else they saw would still argue for him to have a lesser sentence i get that people can change but i feel like this crime was just like so brutal and awful that like once you do something like that what's gonna stop you from doing something still terrible but maybe like a little less bad like murdering one person like would that even seem like anything to him yeah and plus being in jail for like i know it's a problem now for people who get out of jail after like a few years or like 10 years after being in prison for all of your growing up life for that long, how would you be able to like assimilate back into society either? Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it seems a weird, um, a weird stance to take, but yeah. Each to their like own, I get I the argument, 
but I just feel like in this case, it's like it's too much. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, that's a crazy case. There's tons of information. Like this was just like a brief kind of skim of it, but there's so much information that you can get into. Like I said, even the Wikipedia page is very involved um, and all that. But if it sounds like something that you'd be interested in learning more about, definitely give it a Google, check out our blog. There's tons of information on it. There hasn't really been any current updates in that case. I had a look before we recorded the last updates where the appeal that we spoke about that was denied. Everything else is from 2018, so there doesn't seem to be a whole lot happening with them at the moment. But if there is anything that comes up, we will definitely update it. I think Robert, the older one, he's kind of like since come around or since trying to sound like less of a shitty person. I I think, I don't know if he's done like interviews or if it was just like during his testimony, like later when he uh, like pled guilty, like he kind of confessed to everything and like kind of agreed he was a shitty person. So that's interesting to read and go through also. Yeah, there's like hours and hours of interrogation and things like that, which we'll put on the blog. Yeah, and a lot came out because the younger one, Michael, did go to trial. So that's it for the Bevers, I think. Before we get into the rest of the episode, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. So in this episode, we've been talking about some of the stigmas that surround mental health. For example, many people think therapy is for so-called crazy people, but therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you recognize that all humans have emotions and we need to learn to control them, not avoid them. And we've always been taught and told that mental health shouldn't be part of a normal life, but that's wrong too. We take care of our bodies with the gym, the doctor and nutrition. We should be focusing on our minds just as much. My kids are finally going back to school this week after a very long (laughs) summer break. I know firsthand how hard it can be to take some time to care for yourself. We really need to make the time to care for our own well-being and consequently that of our family. We all want to be the best person that we can be. BetterHelp offers so many ways that you can connect with a therapist. You can be flexible and work around the family schedules and speak to someone without leaving your home. And best of all, you can do it whenever it suits you and whenever you've got the time. Also great that it's so flexible for people who work full-time, have crazy schedules, or even people who just hate leaving their houses. You know, I always hated having to go to the waiting room, go to the front desk and check in. So BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's so much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and True Crime Society listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash society. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash society. Make sure to use our URL so they know we sent you. All right. Back to the episode. Now now for your fave case. <laughs> this is a case I've just followed. I remember at the time reading about it. Like I probably read about it, I don't know, at least 10 years ago or even more. But yeah, it's crazy. I always... Google and see if there's any updates. The next case we're going to discuss is the murder of Peter Porco. This one's a little bit older. It did happen in 2004, but as I said, it's just so wild and crazy and there seems to be something that happens with it every few years, so it's always going on. The Porco family were from Delmar, New York. Peter was 52 at the time of the murder. He worked as a court clerk and he lived with his wife, Joan, who was a speech pathologist. The couple had two children, Christopher and Jonathan. Christopher is the youngest child and he was 21 in 2004 when this all happened. So Christopher was a bit of a brat child. During 2004, he had many troubles that his parents had kind of called him out on. It seems like he was very entitled and spoiled, basically. 
While away on a trip to England in March 2004, Christopher received an email from Joan. She was mad that he had been failing his classes at the Hudson Valley Community College in Troy, New York. She sent him a message um, and they said to him, I think it was a joint email from the parents. They said, you just left and we can't believe our eyes as I look at your interim grade report. You know what they say, three strikes and you're out. Explain yourself. The subject for that email they wrote was a failing grades. You did it again, exclamation mark. Christopher ended up replying a few days later. He blamed the community college's registrar and he wrote, but obviously they are incorrect. My lowest grade I got on anything was a B on a physics test. Don't jump to conclusions. I'm fine. So he told the parents that he had actually got readmission to the University of Rochester, but he'd used a forged transcript from the Hudson Valley Community College. Christopher and his parents had also been disagreeing about money in 2004. He had taken out loans to pay for his tuition and a brand new Jeep Wrangler. His parents did not agree with this. So the University of Rochester had forced him to withdraw in 2003 because of his poor grades, which is why he forged the transcript to get back in. When he was readmitted, he took out a loan for $31,000 to pay his expenses and he forged his father's name as a co-signatory. His parents did not know that Christopher was attempting to pay for his tuition with the loan money. Earlier in the fall, he lied and told his parents that the University of Rochester was covering his tuition because the professor had misplaced his final exam from a previous fall semester. Oh, that's nice of them. Yeah, he's digging this very big grave for himself, a big hole. Yeah, snowballing. Uh, Yeah, exactly. It would be hard to get out of it. Two weeks before the murder, Peter confronted his son about his lying in an email. He said, did you forge my signature as a co-signer? What the hell are you doing? You should have called me to discuss it. I'm calling Citibank this morning to find out what you have done, and I'm going to tell them I'm not to be on it as a co-signer. The next day, Peter was notified that Christopher had also obtained a line of credit from Citibank to finance the Jeep, and he had again used his father's name as a co-signatory. Peter once again wrote to his son because Christopher was apparently not answering their calls. He said, I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I'll be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim liability. And that applies to the Citibank College loan if you attempt to reactivate it or use my credit to obtain any other loan. He said he ended the email with, we may be disappointed with you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. So this is all kind of happening, you know, middle of the year, June, July. On November 15th, 2004, someone used the Porco family's secret code to disable the security system at their home, and then hours later, the telephone line was cut. While Peter and Joan were asleep in their bed, they were both attacked with an axe. Joan lay in bed for possibly hours after the attack, and she was severely injured. She would end up surviving, but she did lose one eye and part of her skull, and she suffered severe facial disfigurement. I've seen some photos of her, and it's very obvious that she's been attacked. Um, you know, it's, there's no amount of cosmetic surgery that could really fix the injuries that she ended up sustaining. So terrible. This is the crazy bit, and I think why a lot of people are, find this case so unbelievable. So Peter was hit in the head face and jaw, and his wounds were classified as major axe wounds. The axe actually penetrated his brain and part of his jaw, quote, fell off. Despite all of this, Peter managed to get out of bed and go about his daily morning routine before he died. He spent some time in the bathroom and at the sink. He loaded the dishwasher, packed his lunch for the day and wrote a check. He finally collapsed and died at the front door. I believe this is how the kind of crime scene was discovered because a neighbor saw the body. 
in a nutshell, basically most of Peter's brain was totally destroyed, but the routine part was left intact. So he knew to get up out of bed, like, you know, every day this is what he did. And he still managed to go about, you know, his daily routine despite having these horrific, horrific injuries. It's crazy how the brain works. Yeah. So when police arrived, an axe belonging to the family was found in Peter and Joan's bedroom. There's a Bethlehem police detective named Christopher Bodish. He said that a medical personnel attended to Joan at her home and he took a moment to ask her if she knew her attacker. When he asked Joan if a family member had committed the crime, she nodded yes. He also asked her if it was Jonathan, who was the older brother. Jonathan was a naval officer who was stationed in South Carolina. Joan shook her head and said no. However, when the officer asked her if Christopher was responsible, she again nodded yes. So police quickly tried to find Christopher. He was found to be in his dorm at the University of Rochester, 230 miles away from the family home. His story to police was that on the night of the killings, he went to a dormitory lounge to sleep and awoke the following morning. The police theory, though, was that he drove more than three hours to Albany in the early hours of November 15 to attack his parents. A New York State thruway toll collector outside Rochester said a bright yellow Jeep Wrangler, so he doesn't have a very inconspicuous car. Not discreet. No. Uh, with large tyres, passed through his station at 10.45pm on November 14, and a collector in Albany recalled the excessive speed, quote, of a yellow Jeep Wrangler approaching the toll, toll plaza shortly before 2am on November 15. The Jeep was also caught on security camera. Uh, they Four security cameras at the university recorded the Jeep leaving at 10.30pm and returning at 8.30am. So this is basically the period that they were attacked. Mm. A neighbour of the family also testified that they saw the yellow Jeep in the driveway of the on the night of the attack. So he really either didn't think he'd get caught, he was arrogant and cocky, or he really didn't care, it seems. Yeah, not very discreet at all. Like No. And when they questioned the University of Rochester students, nobody saw him sleeping on the lounge, which was as per his story. So not a very good story. Christopher was charged with second-degree murder in relation to his father Peter and second-degree attempted murder in the severe wounding and disfigurement of Joan. So during the course of the investigation, uh, police determined that Chris had a history of antisocial behaviour that included robbing and stealing from his parents. In 2005, Bethlehem police travelled to San Diego in California to retrieve a laptop that Christopher had stolen from his parents in a break-in in 2003. So this had all been going on for years. Chris then stole the laptop on eBay. Police contended that eight months earlier, on November 28, 2002, Christopher staged a burglary at his parents' home in which he stole a Mac computer and a Dell computer. A camera was also reported missing and that was recovered in the couple's front yard, which is random. One month before the attack, both Christopher and Jonathan had their eBay accounts frozen because they shared the same address. Christopher had not sent several customers the items they had paid for, and during the investigation, prosecutors discovered that Christopher had posed as his brother, sending emails to his customers falsely stating that his brother had died and he was unable to deliver the items. This guy seems like a real little shit. Yeah, I know. He's really, yeah, arrogant. Like, he just seems spoiled, basically. Yeah. So one big twist in this case relates to Joan Porco and her identification of Christopher as the murderer. After she was attacked, Joan was placed into a medically induced coma to give her a chance to recover. When she woke up, she stated that she was unable to remember the attack and then changed her story and said that Christopher was innocent. 
During videotape testimony submitted to the grand jury in December 2004, Joan testified her family about her family but did not identify Christopher as the attacker. She wrote a letter to the Albany Times Union and she said that authorities needed to leave Christopher alone and to, quote, search for Peter's real killer or killers so that he can rest in peace and my sons and I can live in safety. So Christopher's trial began on June 27, 2006. Police have said that Christopher's behavior was consistent with a diagnosis of that of a psychopath or a sociopath, two similar though not identical disorders characterized by pathological deception, scamming, and defrauding others, as well as a lack of conscience or remorse. Chris lied to obtain both a car and tuition payments, and he also lied to fellow students to make it appear that he came from a wealthy family who owned, you know, oceanfront homes and had a ton of money. Yeah, it seems very just, like, delusional. Yeah. The jury began their deliberations on the morning of August 10. By 5 o'clock that day, Christopher was found guilty of second-degree murder and attempted murder. On December 12, 2006, Judge Jeffrey Berry sentenced Christopher to 25 years to life on each count of totaling a minimum of 50 years in prison. Judge Berry was quoted as saying, I fear very much what happened in the early morning hours of November 15 is something that could happen again. Christopher was sent to the Downstate Correctional Facility initially. He was then later moved to the Clinton Correctional Facility in the Danimora Village in New York to serve his prison term. He will be eligible for parole in 2052, so 30 more years. Christopher lived with Joan up until he ended going up until he ended up going to jail. So that's an interesting thing that she was happy to have him in the house until he went to I jail. If, like she had some sort of traumatic brain injury from it. I wonder like, if yeah. she really doesn't remember. Because I have I had a friend in college who had a traumatic brain injury from a car accident. And they said for a long time, like, they had to relearn how to do some things. And it really did mess with their memory. And they couldn't really remember what happened. And they'd be very forgetful. So it's like, I wonder if it's either she's covering for him to, like, protect her son. Or if maybe she really doesn't remember. Or, or even if it's, like... um. How they say when something traumatic happens, you kind of like dissociate. Yeah. And like also being in a coma and all that, you don't actually know what kind of process happened to her brain while she was unconscious. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, like, it could be that she really doesn't remember, but I think maybe she's just not 100% sure now. So she's just going yeah. with the no, he didn't do it line. Yeah. I feel like it definitely could also just be like dissociating, just like kind of how you protect yourself from something so traumatic. Yeah. Like she's you won't like, choose not to believe that. And she's lost her husband now, so she probably doesn't want to lose yeah. her son as well. So, um, But the case, as I said, is pretty quiet now due to the time that's gone on. There was one small update in 2021. Lifetime produced a movie titled Romeo Killer, the Chris Porco story in 2013. Chris attempted to sue Lifetime on the grounds of Section 51 of the state civil rights law, which prohibits use of a non-consensual living person's name, portrait, or photo for purposes of advertising or trade. But in November last year, the Court of Appeals dismissed the case as no substantial constitutional question is directly involved. I looked it up. I think the movie gets like three on IMDb or something, so it must be really, really It's actually, I think, a five. A five. A five's not too bad. Five out of ten. (laughs) <laughs> not great but just like weird that they use the name like romeo killer as if he's hot or something because yeah, like, like a love god i don't know he's why not, they used chris porco's not good looking and like even the actor playing him isn't good looking yeah so yeah shitty headline <laughs> it seems like <laughs> it seems very like a weird thing <laughs> that they pulled out of this 
So I did have a look and tried to see if Jonathan and Joan had kind of been up to anything or if there was any updates, and there doesn't seem to be. Um, I believe Jonathan would be around 40 years old now. He obviously probably purposely lives a pretty quiet life with no, you know, discernible social media and things like that. So it seems like Joan is still alive. I can't find anything stating, you know, she's a little bit older now, but I can't find anything stating that she has passed away. But um, um, Didn't someone message on Instagram also saying, like, the Romeo killer thing? Yeah, I'll see if I can find it. I think she said, like, because they were trying to insinuate that, like, all the ladies loved him, like he was the Romeo. Yeah, she went to school with him, and she said that was so not the case. Like, he was not, like, this guy that ladies were fawning over. She basically said that he was a loser and a weirdo at the time (laughs) anyway. Yeah. For this case, there's also a bunch of crime scene photos online that we'll put in the blog. Yeah. But I was wondering, I don't remember off the top of my head, I would love to know what the check was that he wrote. Was there a picture of that, or? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, I'd love to know, like, because I get kind of just going through the routine motions, like, from the brain injury. Did he actually, like, write out a check? And, like, what was it for? Yeah, what do you think he was paying? What do you think he was paying? Yeah, because that's not really, that's not so routine to do. Like, I get writing checks as routine. But, like, what about the non-routine part of it? So it's like, I wonder what he wrote or if he even wrote anything or if it's just, like, a scribble. I've actually just Googled. Hold on a minute. Yeah, they reckon that this ABC article actually says that he made the check out to Christopher. So it says, police found a check Peter had made out to his son Christopher on top of knocked over dishes in the kitchen covered in Peter's blood. So, yeah, I wonder if he did that because he had woken up and seen Christopher attacking him and that was kind of the last face that he saw. Or it's because he was writing Christopher a lot of fucking checks because he's a loser. (laughs) We'll never know. That's really interesting, though. It is definitely interesting. All right, next one. Mm-hmm. All right, the third case we're going to chat about today is the Van Breda family murders. I feel like this case isn't as well known to our audience, maybe because it happened in South Africa. Um, I didn't know about it until like you were talking about it. I feel like because they have an Australian connection, it was quite big on the news here. Um, but, you know, obviously I'm sure that there's crimes like this that happen a lot and we just don't hear about them because of the location. So, mm. yeah, this is a wild one. So. Martin Van Breda lived in Stellenbosch, South Africa, with his family in 2015. His wife, uh, he was 54, his wife Teresa was 55, and their kids were Rudy, who was 22, Henry, who was 20, and Marley was 16. All end in I. Yeah, yeah, very South African. Um, I believe the family was very wealthy. Martin was reportedly a director of at least 25 companies. And I've read that he owned the Australian subsidiary of the international property group Ongul and Volkers. He also developed a private school in Pretoria in South Africa, and he funded a company that tracks and recovers stolen vehicles. So I had a little bit of a look and tried to kind of track their life before they went back to South Africa. They did buy a house in Butterham in Queensland in Australia in 2012 for $2.2 million. They also lived in Melbourne at some points. So they kind of seem to be very well-traveled, very well-educated, um, you know, living a very affluent lifestyle. The family had been living in Australia and they moved back to South Africa in January 2014. They decided to move back due to Martin's work and Teresa also wanted to be closer to her family. Marley went with her parents, but Henry and Rudy stayed in Australia for a little bit longer as they were both studying at university. The two boys, though, did join the rest of the family a bit later in 2014. 
Their home in South Africa was in the Dizols Golf Estate. The estate looks really beautiful. I had a look at it online. It's got a world-renowned golf course, vineyards, a restaurant, very fancy. I had a look online and a four-bedroom home in the estate is currently for sale for 19.5 million rand, which equates to around 1.3 million US dollars. And I've read that the Van Breda estate is valued at around 17 million dollars. So there isn't too much information online about the family before this all happened. They just seemed to kind of travel a lot. Martin worked a lot. Um, You know, the kids were at uni. It was just life as usual for them. On January 27, 2015, Henry Van Breda attempted to call his girlfriend at 4.42 a.m., but she didn't answer. He then searched the internet for emergency numbers. I, I did a Google and it tells me the emergency number 10111. This is what comes up as soon as you search. Um, the emergency number in Australia is 000, so it would be a little bit different maybe to what he's used to if he's ever had to call before, but I feel like you know the emergency number of the country that you're in anyway like it's not a hard thing to find out that must be so stressful to be in an emergency and then being like fuck like i can't call 911 i'm in a different (laughs) country or like then you have to google try to frantically google it like and that's why i like you know i mean he's me saying it's easy i actually did find two numbers for south africa but i'm pretty sure that is the right one so hopefully i've got it right yeah, anyway. like I only know the Australia one because of you. If I, if I was in Australia, I guess you would think to like look it up or if you were there for a bit, you would like know it, but I don't know. Mm, that's weird. Anyway, so almost three hours after he did his Googling, he finally called emergency services. There's a clip here that will play. What is Stephen? What is your emergency? I, um, yeah. I need an ambulance. Lots of... Um, you need an ambulance? Yes, please. What's your name, sir? Uh, Henry from Bredar. Henry. What's the yes. contact number you're phoning from? Um, my home phone number, but um, I'm not sure what the home phone number is. My cell phone. Uh, we're at 12 Huska Street, please. What is this number that you're phoning from? <sighs> is there someone else that can speak if you're not able to? No. I'm Who else is in the house? There's no one else. Uh, I need else the is. contact number, please. Yeah, okay. 021. 021. 8800. 8800. 493. What? And you the patient? No, no, my family is someone attacked my family. Hey? Someone has attacked my family in my house. Okay, so you need the police or well, an ambulance? And an ambulance, please, yeah. Now, who is um, injured? My, I think everyone. Everyone in your house? Everyone, four people, yes. Adults, two adults. Two adults and two, well, three adults and one teenage girl, yes. What are the injuries? Um, head injuries, I'd look for. Are they conscious? I don't, I don't think so, my sister's moving, but that's it. Suspects still on scene, Lisa. Sorry? Are there any suspects on scene? Uh, no, no, they ran away. With what were they attacked? I um a, an an axe. I, it it was I, I I think I blacked out and I've just woken up. With an axe. Okay, stay on the line. I'm gonna speak to the police. Thank you, but please send an ambulance as quickly as possible. Yes. Are you the only one that's conscious? You know, yes. the others are unconscious. Hold. Yes. I'm gonna speak to police to check on your number where you are. Because you don't know your street name, you say. The, the street name is Hoska Street. Okay, I'm not picking it up on the contact number that you're giving me. Okay. All right, so he said things in the clip like, 
Me, my family and me, we were attacked by a guy with an axe. So police rushed to the scene and they found Martin and Teresa and the oldest child, Rudy, dead from their axe wounds. Marley, who was the youngest, suffered horrific injuries and was raced to an intensive care unit. Henry was found with only minor lacerations. Marley would remain in the hospital for months and she went through many surgeries. She has since been diagnosed with retrograde amnesia and has no recollection of the attacks. So the definition of retrograde amnesia is, quote, a loss of memory access to events that occurred or information that was learned in the past. It is caused by an injury or the onset of a disease. So you almost have to wonder if that could be relatable to Joan Porco as well, maybe. I was just thinking. I don't know. So could be. An axe and a knife were both found at the scene. Um, It's thought that they were both owned by the family before the attacks. Police found no signs of forced entry. Entry. According to police, Henry was dressed in boxer shorts and white socks that were covered in blood. No arrests were made straight away in the case. Marley spent months undergoing intensive physiotherapy and eventually returned to school, but she was kept separate from Henry. They both lived with different family members. There were lots of rumours about Henry's involvement in the murder. I kind of remember following this case as it was happening, and I feel like everyone thought that Henry did it, but you know, it took a while for them to kind of get it all lined up. He spoke, in a, uh, spoke about his innocence to many local news outlets, and they also reported that he had a tick addiction, T-I-K. I believe tick is what they call methamphetamine in South Africa. The Sunday Times also published an article stating that police had been investigating possible motives for the murders, and they believe that Henry may have had his allowance cut off by Teresa and Martin. This kind of goes on more and more. It is very similar in some ways to the Porco case. The Times tracked down a man who claimed to have been Henry's drug dealer and reportedly identified him from a photograph saying that he'd been a regular customer. Henry had allegedly also spent time at an upmarket drug rehab centre in Cape Town. Police determined during the investigation that blood found on Henry's clothing matched the DNA of his brother and parents. In June 2016, police very politely called Henry's lawyer to inform her of his imminent arrest. They advised him to turn himself in, which he did on June 13. Marley's legal representative released the following statement at the time, and it said, The news is understandably very distressing to Marley. The family want justice to take its course. So one day after he turned himself in on June 14, Henry appeared in the Stellenbosch Magistrate Court to face three charges of murder, one of attempted murder, and defeating the ends of justice. Bail was set at around 100000 which is around $6.5,000 US dollars, which seems very low, but I guess, I don't know, it's all relative. Henry was released under conditions that he report to his local police station and he was not to leave the area. They held a pre-trial hearing at the Western Cape High Court in September 2016, and the case was postponed until November as the state prosecutor, Susan Galloway, requested more time to get computer and DNA evidence. Henry and his girlfriend at the time, Danielle Danielle Van Rensburg, were arrested on September 6, 2016 for possession of cannabis and they were granted bail of 1,200 rand respectively. 200 rand is $13, by the way. (laughs) So held heard on 12th of November at the Cape Town Magistrate Court and was postponed again due to outstanding documentation. There's a lot of stop-starts in this case in the legal process. Henry's trial for the murder of his family started on April 4, 2017. He pled not guilty. During the trial, he told the court that his family had been attacked by an axe-wielding black man wearing dark clothes, gloves, and a balaclava. 
He told the court that his family was sleeping upstairs when an intruder broke into the home. He said from the doorway of his bathroom, he saw a tall man wearing a balaclava, gloves and dark clothes going to the bedroom he shared with his brother and suddenly attack him with an axe. Henry says he cried out for help and that woke his father up. So the father ran into the room, followed by Teresa and Marley. All were brutally attacked, he says, while he stood frozen with fear. He says he then struggled with the intruder who laughed, um, and that, but he was able to somehow disarm the intruder, at which point the intruder produced a knife, stabbed him, and fled the scene while laughing. A paramedic who was there at the scene gave his version of events. He said, quote, blood ran like a waterfall down the stairs. This one kind of, sorry, just random thought. This one seems actually, it's like both the Bever case and the Porco case combined in a way. Yeah, a lot more, I guess they're all bloody, but um, this one seems a lot more frenzied. And- yeah, just like the frenzy, the laughing, like yeah. the axe versus like the stabbing. like Definitely. So we learned that Martin and Teresa had been found in a pool of blood on the first floor of the mansion. Rudy's body was found close to Marley, who when she was still struggling to stay alive at that point. Martin's brother Cornelius also testified during the trial. When he was asked who would want to hurt the family, he said no one. He told the court they were close-knit and they had no enemies. So the prosecutor, Susan Galloway, asked Henry to reenact the attack that he had seen, which he did. There are photos of him in the courtroom with the axe, like you can see him kind of waving it back and forth, like I guess he allegedly saw the attacker doing. I'll pop it all on the blog. Um, Susan said, most people, if you're in that kind of altercation, would tell you, listen, I don't know what blow followed what blow. I just knew he was coming at me with an axe, which I managed to take from him. She said Henry was able to almost give a choreographed version of the arms and the hands and the weapons. So it seems like a very detailed um, story that he had put together. One fact that the defence played on quite a lot was the high crime rate in South Africa, which led to the intruder theory being maybe a little bit plausible. I had a look and South Africa has the third highest crime rate in the world, only beaten by Venezuela and Papua New Guinea. The prosecution's argument was that all of Henry's injuries had been self-inflicted and they also spoke about some other inconsistencies with his story. Why would an intruder seeking to rob a home ignore valuable items downstairs and embark on a killing spree upstairs instead? The estate where the family lived is considered one of the most safest places in South Africa. They had motion detectors, an alarm system, 24-hour guard patrol, access control gates and an electric fence. So it would have been very hard for some random to get in it seems. Um, he, when they asked Henry, he also could not explain why there were no signs of forced entry or why he escaped, you know, pretty uninjured. A forensic pathologist analyzed Henry's injuries and she told 60 Minutes Australia that they were, quote, all very superficial. They barely broke the skin. She also said they were uniform, so they were similar in nature and had a similar appearance. If you think you were just involved in an altercation or phys- physical fight, struggle for life and death, people holding onto each other, you would maybe expect to see bruises around the forearms, around the upper arm as you're pulling and pushing, but nothing. Or at least not cuts that are all generally the same. Yeah, like you can just imagine him just like a few little stabs in himself. Like, like sitting just- there just like slicing himself. <laughs> <laughs> so expert analysis showed that all the victims had been attacked by the same single person. So there was no, you know, definitely not two, more than one attacker. The prosecution also argued that Henry waited for hours to call for help because he wanted to ensure that his family bled to death. His defense was that he collapsed after seeing his family attacked and that he was unconscious for hours. Neighbors who lived close to the family spoke about hearing a loud argument on the night of the attacks, but Henry's team said that the sounds had been from a movie that had the volume up loud. 
Henry also spoke about during the trial his relationship with his family. He said they were, quote, a normal family with normal disagreements. If any of the children got into arguments with their parents, he said it was generally Marley who was growing in rebellion, I guess, as you know, a 16-year-old teenage girl. But people close to the family said that Henry was the black sheep of the family. Rudy and Marley both excelled in their studies at school while he dropped out and lacked direction. When he returned to South Africa from Australia in 2014, he said it was a gap year and he like his, the people who were testifying said that basically he had no real plan or direction for his life. So the court got into graphic detail about injuries suffered by the family. This info is from bbc.com. Of all the victims, Marley had put up the greatest fight. Unlike her mother and brother who had minor defensive wounds, which may, mean, may have meant they were asleep before the attack, Marley maybe saw Henry coming and tried to fight him off. His father, Martin, had deep wounds on his back. During the sentencing, Judge Desai said that this was an indication he had used his own body to try and shield Rudy from Henry, perhaps believing that Henry would not strike him, but he did. On June 7, 2018, Henry was sentenced to three life terms for the murder of his parents and brother, another 15 years for the attempted murder of Marley, and another 12 months for obstruction of justice. He was moved to a facility called the Drakenstein Correctional Centre to serve out his sentence. That prison is kind of famous for being the location where Nelson Mandela spent the last part of his imprisonment. Henry attempted to appeal his conviction in November 2018. His girlfriend, Danielle, who we mentioned before, she was the one who was arrested with him for cannabis, spoke to 60 Minutes Australia about the appeal and said that Henry was, quote, unable to hurt anything, let alone kill his loved ones. He told me everything. He was very open and he was very honest. She said, his story still always made sense to me with the lack of evidence. We are very confident in the appeal, but on November 7, so not far after he made the appeal, the Supreme Court of Appeal dismissed it. He had no chance of appeal. Henry's aunt, Linta Neal Nels, the sister of Teresa, also spoke to 60 Minutes and said that she vowed to support Henry even though he was guilty. She, she was asked why she had never asked Henry if he was responsible for the attack, and she said, I wonder whether I'm not bothered now whether he did it or not. I want to emotionally support him. So the 60 Minutes article with a lot of this information, I'll put, put it on the blog. It's very, it's interesting. It goes into a lot of detail about the family and the trial and, you know, different things like that. So if you're interested in learning more, you can check that out on the blog. Marley has never, never spoken publicly about the attacks or about her brother's conviction. She did not give any evidence during the trial and she was not seen in court. I did see that the judge had ordered that kind of no photos of her be shown, you know, like don't video her going into the court or anything like that. They were ordered, the media was ordered to give her privacy, which they seem to have respected. She does have a private Instagram um, and her bio says, quote, loving all of life. So hopefully she's managed to kind of start healing from this and moving on and, you know, living the rest of her life as best she can. Yeah, crazy. It must be so hard to go on as like the only survivors. No, yeah, and, yeah. I guess at least with um, Crystal and the other Autumn, the other Bever children, they at least have each other. But yeah, imagine being the only one really left now. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure it was Autumn as the baby. Yeah, like I wonder if being a baby makes it easier or harder. Yeah, because like she never even really knew them. But she has no memory of them. Yeah, but I'm sure that comes with like its own issues too. Its own set of problems. So, yeah, again, not much news to update in terms of that case. There doesn't seem to be much else happening. Um, most of the articles, there's a few, you know, pieces here and there, but basically just rehashing the murders. 
So nothing new with that yeah. one. I don't think there will be unless he makes another appeal or when he finally gets out. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there'll be updates with any of these cases, but like we said, you ne- really never know. Yeah, I guess it could be something unexpected, like a suicide attempt or a suicide or, you know, by one of the perpetrators. But The only types of things that could happen is like suicide attempt, more appeals, or like a jailhouse interview yeah. where they just say stuff that we have already heard. Yeah. So that is it, I think, for Kids Who Kill. Make sure you check out our blog. We'll have blogs for all three cases so you can learn more, look at all the photos if you're into that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in all of them, the motives seem to be actually like maybe a little bit less so with the Bevers because, you know, I feel like for them, their family was just a very strict family and they just were weirdos who rebelled. I don't know if the abuse part about the father is true, but... I feel like they were just strange kids, whereas with Christopher and with Henry, I think it was financial and, um, or, you know, mostly financial anyway. Yeah, the Bever one's weird. I mean, they're all weird, but just, like, that one's kind of different because it seemed like they were so, everyone said they were very sheltered. Yeah, and I remember at the time reading things about how the mother was quite strict and didn't she have, like, a lot of posts on homeschooling? Maybe I'm getting that confused mm-hmm. with the totes. But, um, no, she yeah. didn't. Yeah, so she's like, it would be hard to homeschool that many children as well, um, such different ages. So it proves how sheltered they were. The fact that they thought that they, like we were saying before, they thought they were going to do all these things, go on this cross country crime spree and not get caught. Like that they had no idea basically how any of this worked or that they, like, they really thought they were going to get away. And realistically, they got caught like in their own backyard, basically. Yeah, they got caught before they, yeah, even got anywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there'll be more of these type of cases, unfortunately, that come up, so we'll post about them on the socials when they do. So one little update today is that this week, Thursday, which is the 28th for you guys, marks two years since Gannon Stark was murdered by his, or allegedly murdered by his stepmother, Letitia. Um, He went missing. This is one of the bigger cases that we've ever covered. It was drawn out. He was missing. Um, His body was eventually found, and kind of the legal process has been going on for this whole time there were some updates this week saying that the the trial is going to go ahead this year um the judge has set aside six weeks but he estimates it will take four weeks they are trying to get a pool of 70 people to be on the jury and they've basically one of the they got a big question list one of the questions they will be asking is if any of the jurors ever attended any community again events for gannon i guess all those people who got tattoos are out I know they would be the first ones to be lining up. You'd think if they could, but um, they'd be the first ones eliminated. <laughs> so apparently, opening statements are tentatively planned to start on April four. And one interesting part, which I've never ever seen before, is that it says the attorneys' electronics will be bolted to the table. The prosecution must also have privacy screens on their laptops since they are closer to the jury. So I think the room. Like they've they've said the jury will be quite close to the attorneys, so they don't want to risk them seeing anything that could be prejudicial on the laptops. But yeah, I've never ever seen that before, especially about the bolted down part. Yeah, it makes me wonder like how small the courtroom really is. Mm, I feel like even if there was like a laptop or something ten feet away from me, there's like no way I could read. I'm also very blind, even with contacts. (laughs) It's hard for me to see. But I feel like you must have some sort of great vision to see that. But I guess. The argument is like they don't even want to take the chance of like a mistrial or something or whatever that would result in. You wonder if like, and I get why they're so paranoid because Gannon's case was so big and there were so many people who were really invested. But if if it's that 
um, risky. Do you know what I mean? Like if they're asking people, did you attend an event for Gannon? Why don't they move the trial? I know they can do that. I don't yeah, know like why less they local. Yeah, move it even to another county or you know I don't know somewhere else. That's weird. Did but... they try? Like did she, her defense know. team like try that? I feel like they didn't. I feel like this would be like the one case where they're like, yeah, it's probably a good idea because most of the time they try and they're like, no. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Gannon's case, we have so many blogs, um, you know, with a whole rundown of it. But basically, um, he went missing in January. His body was found in March. Um, they arrested Letitia before his body was found, I believe. So obviously, Gannon's father has since divorced Letitia, and I'm pretty sure he's remarried to a new mm-hmm. woman, which is good for him to kind of have a little bit of happiness in his life. Yeah. Um, so she's Letitia is facing over a dozen charges, including first degree murder. She's she's been a bit crazy lately. She's there's videos of her acting, you know, wild online. So she definitely has like some mental illness, I'm sure, but she's also definitely going for that insanity play. Definitely playing it up. So when she when she gave interviews during all this happened, she talked to the police like a good amount, talked to the media a good amount. She was trying to pretend she was innocent. And it wasn't like she was this unhinged, mentally ill woman then, but that's what she's being now. Yeah. So, like, they held mental health hearings for her last year. I'm guessing they've decided that she is, you know, maybe all right to stand trial. So, we'll hopefully it all goes ahead. I still wish she was representing herself, though. <laughs> Someone asked me if it was going to be televised. I don't know. I hope so. Um, I suspect probably not, though, if they're so worried about electronics being bolted down and things like that maybe not but also i wonder if because gannon's like a minor yeah do they i feel like it's harder then because even though like everyone knows so much technically they're they have to keep like minor details about minors private yeah that would make sense but i i don't know i'm like i know that there's been a lot of reporters who kind of live tweet from all the court hearings so at least hopefully maybe they'll still be able to do that but yeah that'll be some some good rundowns We'll have to wait and see. So maybe once this all happens, we could even do an update, bigger update for Gun once it all starts going ahead. Yeah. That was kind of one of the first cases that we, like, covered or it was, like, going on at the beginning of when we started the podcast. I feel like there's a few, like the Tote Gannon case. um, Molly Tibbetts was probably another one Mm -hmm. that you follow as soon as that happens and follow it in real time. Yeah. I think next week we are hopefully planning to do an episode for Lauren Smithfield. She was the woman who went on a Bumble date and was found dead the next day. So it's an interesting one with lots of um, controversy, you know, controversy, and lots of yeah different things going on. So we're, we're I've started the notes for that, and we'll hopefully get to that one next week. Yeah, there's there's not we don't think there's enough details really out to do a whole episode. So we might do like um. Kind of like dating app crimes. Maybe you think of a few others. But yeah, that's it for this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. That's where we post all the updates, kind of the most live. We do some polls. We ask some questions. We'll get people's thoughts on things we're recording. Sometimes we'll read them on the podcast, depending on the time. Um, Definitely check that out. Um, Our blog, like we've been saying, we'll have like all the photos and any other information you would want to know about the cases that we talked about today. We have the forum at truecrimesociety.com, which is a good spot to post anonymously about things. If you don't want, if you want to maybe post about your your neighbor who's like some prolific murderer or something, but you don't want them to know you're posting about them, great way to do it. Um, also just a good place to read. If you haven't left us a review yet, you can leave us a review on Apple. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify. Five stars, please. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> 
I was just thinking about it while you're saying that. Do you think we need to talk about the Ethan Crumbly update quickly? Yeah, I guess so. So one other quick update. Um, of course, it happened as soon as we released the last podcast episode about Ethan Crumbly and the Oxford school shooting was that his attorneys have said that Ethan plans to pursue an inf- insanity defence. His lawyers, Paulette Lofton and Amy Hopp, wrote a one-paragraph filing with the Oakland County Circuit Court and they wrote, please take notice that Ethan Crumbly intends to assert the defence of insanity at the time of the alleged defence. So um, we posted about this on our social media and it got a lot of very heated comments and debates about if he was really insane. A lot of people said they believe that the notes he wrote, you know, the ones that we spoke about where it said like blood everywhere and the thoughts won't stop, help me, were just a he knew that they were going to be seen and he did that as a kind of a cover. So maybe he eventually yeah. could plead insanity where he really essentially knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. I don't really have an opinion on it yet. Like I don't think it's so – I think I it's think possible he's that he would be able to get it. But yeah. I also don't th- – yeah, like you're saying, like I don't think he's insane where it's like he didn't know what he was doing. No. But I, I think, think like, he, he totally could put up a good saying. argument for it maybe with his parents and like I feel like I don't know enough about him as a person to really have like a good opinion on that yet yeah about yeah his diagnosis and everything following the shooting but yeah it's interesting I'm not I'm not totally surprised to be honest that that's the way they're going but um I feel like most of them go that way Nicholas Cruz tried to do that too but he definitely he didn't get it either he was he was found just like guilty guilty yeah but for the that was Parkland. Like he tried to act very insane, kind of like T during like court appearances and like would twitch kind of and pretend he was like seeing things, but no one really bought it. And I also think too, a lot of the times it takes a long time, like in especially like even the Laurie Vallow case and things like that, it takes a long time for them to prove insanity. So it gives them a chance to drag it out a little bit more. Yeah, that's true. Um, so maybe that plays part of it too. Yeah, I, I do believe that he knew what he was doing. And like, the yeah, like you were saying, like the notes are seemed very meticulous yeah and especially then for him to cover them up like after he was found you know he scribbled over them and tried to make them he wrote like stuff like lol and you know whatever but yeah it'll be interesting to see what comes from that Hmm. all right um that's it for this episode thanks for listening i realized like i never say thanks for listening i don't think and then i heard them say it on another podcast that i listened to and i was like wow maybe i should start saying thanks for listening (laughs) we really appreciate listening (laughs) really appreciate it very grateful Um, And we will talk to you guys next week. See ya. Bye.